forgot thy sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness, and so you are revered. I wait with longing for the Lord. My soul waits for his word. My soul looks for the Lord more than sentinels for daybreak. More than sentinels for daybreak, let Israel look for the Lord. For with the Lord is kindness, and with him is full redemption. And God will redeem Israel from all their sins. Lord Jesus, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to guide us in this class, to open our ears and our hearts to your voice, our lives, and seeing this model for us of Abraham, who followed your father by faith. We ask that you can give us the grace and the gifts to do so as well. We ask this all in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, up here at the beginning of our outline, we have the great story, Abraham and the promise. The other option for opening activity was to sing the song, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Anyone remember that song maybe from Vacation Bible School if you went there, or a different one, uh, or some other format? Um, but he is kind of the beginning of the patriarchs, the people that uh, in the Jewish faith as well as here in the Christian faith we look forward to as this is the founding of when God really began to formalize something here. So at the middle of that page, we have looking for the shoot, which begins in Genesis 11. And I say shoot because it has an allusion to a later prophecy in Isaiah, but we kind of talked last week why these male names, um, where were the females. And when we talked with that, um, it's because at the fall, God promised that there would be an offspring of the woman. So we're looking for a male offspring. So we're continuing to look for that line. So when we pick up the story again here after Noah in Genesis 11, um, we see the line that goes from Noah to Abraham, Abram. So Abram's in the line of Noah. So it goes Noah, Shem, Arpshad, Shelah, Eber. Uh, I'm not going to do justice to the rest of the names, but in there you can see that this same family is where Abram comes from. And I say Abram just because uh, if the name's new to you and you're recognizing Abraham, this was his first name. We're going to hear about his name change a little later on. But our first introduction there is at the bottom of the page, Genesis 11, 27 to 31. These are the descendants of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. Haran died before Terah, his father, in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and brought them out of 
Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Cana. But when they reached Haran, they settled there. So it sets the scene for us. Something is about to take place. Uh, and just for your frame of reference, when we talk of Ur of the Chaldeans, um, the Chaldeans were in Mesopotamia. So think modern day Iraq and Iran, uh, and they are traveling over to the Holy Land. So this is where this journey begins, but then they settle along the way and we're not told why. Um, but Abram is to continue the journey. Also, Ur, if you think about it, it's a very, very influential and like well-to-do city. So just have that in the back of mind as we begin on page two with Abram and his call. And I apologize there at the top. You can see I kind of needed to go back through and refine what verses are there. But it begins in Genesis 12. Um, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will find blessing in you. Abram went as the Lord directed him. Abram took his wife, Sarai, his brother's son, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the persons they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Cana. When they came to the land of Cana, Abram passed through the land as far as the sacred place at Shechem by the oak of Morah. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel, pitching his tent with Bethel to the west and I to the east. He built an altar there to the Lord and invoked the Lord by name. Then Abram journeyed on stages to the Negev. So the first point I want to begin there is in letter A. Abram says, invoke the Lord by name. If you think back even to our activity now, one thing John just said of what made it super helpful for him to get through is that Chad knew his last name. Chad was able to invoke John by name. John Hassey, come this way. So we can read that in the sense of Abram knew God personally. He was able to discern his voice and listen to him. And it ties us back kind of an overarching theme you're going to see throughout along the way. The idea that our foundation should be our relationship with God. He is the one who calls us. He is the one that loves us. And our response to him is a response to his call. From that, he gives us our identity. He tells us who we are, that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that he wants to adopt us as his sons and daughters. And knowing that identity, then we can have security to go out and achieve the missions, the callings that he is calling us to. So we can already see something great is going on here with Abram. And then if we think back last week to Noah, the line of Noah's purpose 
right? We said once Noah disembarked from the ark, he was going to establish right order of worship and right living according to the word of God. So Noah was to continue the work that God began with Adam and Eve. Although it had a kind of a little bit of a restart with the flood, this was Noah's purpose. So this idea would have been passed along that family line. We got to help individuals know how it is to worship God and then what is right living according to his instructions. So then we see that actually in letter B. So go back up to that first pair, the second paragraph there, where it says, Abram went as the Lord directed him. Abram took his wife Sarai, his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the persons they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Cana. So when you read that, what, what's going on there? How would you describe it in your own words? Already preaching something because he's got followers. Oh, okay, great. Does anyone else read it differently? <laughs> Slaves, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's great because that's actually the distinction I want to get at. And you can see there down at the bottom, I'm thanking Chad for these notes. So if uh, he is going, or if I could say anything correct, um, He's going to step in because this is all actually stuff I learned from him. But the, even in some translations in scripture, it will say slaves, like they acquired slaves. But the actual words that are used is more of they acquire, they made souls. They made converts during here. We're going to walk through it here in just a minute. But we're going to at least back up because we have to see how this follows in Abram's call. So. He's called to go and migrate to the promised land. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Go get you out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So it's said in a form of a command. It said, You go. And then in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then it's said in an imperative again, and so be a blessing. So we read that as I will do this, but it's written in the original language in Hebrew to actually have it say, you need to go do this. It's not just something that I'm going to bestow on you. Are you going to do it? And then in verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed themselves or will be blessed. So go, do these promises, be a blessing, and live into these promises. Go, this is the command, and I will do these things. My doing these things is to an end that you may be a blessing. So go be a blessing, and I will do further things as well. We kind of lose that in the English, but then when you have that in frame of reference of, okay, God's telling, go do this. Then we read the next few verses, actually, and it's like, is Abram going to live up to this command? And then what do we see? Yeah, he is. So he goes. And then those original words are not just persons, they're souls. 
And that acquired is actually the same word that is used when like God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world. He made it. And so it's the same way. Abram is making these converts. He's sharing the great name of the Lord and what it is to follow him. Because if the author of Genesis down there at the bottom, you have that notes there uh, at the bottom of page two, that last slide. If the author of Genesis wanted to note that this was a transactional acquirement, then he would have used the word for transaction. These are the slaves that I bought. These are the slaves that I bought. Uh, if you flip back to the beginning, you can see on page one there, the ruins of the altar Abram built between Bethel on the west and I on the east. That's the verses that we just ended with. It's a black and white picture, and I maybe should have made it a little bit bigger. But then if you flip um, over to the top of page three as well, you can see another instance of Abram's first altar that he built near Shechem. So just take a moment to maybe flip back and forth and then look at and then we'll pause, but then describe what those ruins look like. I don't know. You're asking a question. What do you think? Well, like answering the question is a question. When you think about an altar, what did, when we heard that just a moment ago, what did you envision? Like a table, right? And then you look at these actual ruins, and what do they look like? They look like a space for worship, a gathering place where you're going to call on and invoke the name of the Lord. And so when we began this great story with creation, you know, Chad talked about how God was fitting a temple in creation. And so we're already seeing that played out right here. We're we don't want to take for granted the roots of this way that God has intervened and interacted with people in the world. Say, create this space for worship with me. And surprisingly enough, like the space that Abraham offers worship look very similar to a church, right? To a, a building space for which people come together to worship God. So then if you want to flip to page three, below that picture, we have our letter C from point two. Uh, God gives Abram a promise of adoption because of his faithfulness. Abram in the line of Adam is to be part of God's redemptive mission for the world. In his line will be, we have, and then there's that image of God's threefold blessings to Abram. There's some promises there that we heard that we're going to talk about here as we go forward. Nationhood. So there's going to be a nation, a land. There's going to be a name or a dynasty. Um, later on in the next chart, but we'll mention it here. That word for name also in Hebrew implies in a sense of like a kingly dynasty. So when he says, I will make your name great, he's saying not just, hey, we're going to remember this guy's name. He's going to have a line, a dynasty that continues on after him. Just as kind of anyone know, like our Chinese dynasties, 
and social study teachers, all of our, our teachers here, right? But maybe you can just, if I say that at Jarl's, um, a lot of the Chinese dynasties, you'll actually remember them by whatever the emperor's name was. And they span for 400, 500 years, um, as well as, you know, you can think of um, Caesar. Like if you know your Roman history, we called the emperor Caesar because of one guy and they followed in the line. So um, this is what it's being said. There's going to be a name that is made great and dynasty that's going to follow. And then finally, and probably the best is the worldwide blessing. And those are highlighted by different times that God appears to Abram and makes covenants with him. So this binding promise, this faithful, loving promise that he makes with him in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and then Genesis 22. And then they're fulfilled through different covenants that actually follow later on down the line. So we have the covenant with Moses, we have the covenant with King David, and the new covenant that is brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ. So over the next two weeks, we're actually going to pick up Moses and then David will follow. So we'll follow right in along those lines. So there on page four, we're not going to go point by point. Uh, mainly just because we want to get out of here at 815. And we could spend like, the, we should probably actually spend is the better way to put that. The next like three, four weeks going through the life of Abram. Um, and Abraham and some of these accounts. So this story right here is just kind of summarized for you in that box. As well as, I have some handouts. Uh, there's 15 of them. So maybe um, if you're a couple, you'd just take one. But uh, this is a good summary of Abram's story from this book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises by uh, Scott Hahn. Uh, so this walks through kind of like the great story that we're going through. Um, be a highly recommended, uh, suggested reading to this course, uh, especially as we're walking through the great story, because it will talk more in depth about um, everyone that we've encountered and then some of the people that we might, just because of time, um, have to leave their stories, uh, not behind, but we just won't have the time to cover them. Um, so there is some about Abram here, if you wanted to know kind of more point by point of his whole story. Uh, but I'm almost like, I don't know where to go with this, but let's just kind of look uh, briefly at some of these key points. So Abram receives God's promises that we, we just heard. Uh, in the verses that concluded, we see that he went down to Negeb. Uh, which is Egypt. So there's a famine in the land after they get settled and they go move down to Egypt. There's an account there where they go down and Sarai is a beautiful lady and Abram's worried that the Egyptians are going to kill him and run off with his bride. And so they tell him or she tells or he tells her, hey, why don't you tell all the Egyptians that you're my sister? And then she actually gets entrapped into Pharaoh's um, household. And uh, God 
they they work themselves out. Um, but after that, God says to Abram, like, hey, remember to trust me. Like, you did not do your best here. Remember to trust me. And when they leave Egypt, there's actually a promise that Abram's children is going to receive the land on which they are. They're going to be um, in Egypt, but they're going to go and receive the land that God had promised them. Um, after that, Abram and Lot go back to where God called them. They split up. Lot goes to the Jordan Valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were, and Abram lives in the land of Cana. And then God again says, Abram, look all around you. This land will be for your descendants. And then in that box there, the third one, Genesis 13, 13. Now the inhabitants of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So that's an illusion as you're reading the story. Hey, something's going to happen here. And it, even if we have in our frame of reference from the flood and what Abram's supposed to be doing, restore right worship, restore right living. So we see that there's a problem here that has to be dealt with. Uh, later on in the story, uh, Lot gets captured. Abram goes on a rescue mission, has a battle. But then this is one that we could probably break open later on the road. But once Abram rescues Lot, he's actually blessed by this king in Salem called Melchizedek. It comes literally out of nowhere. And the blessing of Melchizedek, king of Salem, actually foreshadows that Jerusalem is going to be a holy city. So this king comes out of nowhere. Um, he's the king of peace, the king of Salem, and he offers uh, a sacrifice to Abram and to the Most High God. And Abram gives him a tent. And you might read that if you've read through the letter of Hebrews and seen his name. So it's really important, but probably a topic for another night. Genesis 15, really big. Uh, if you've ever listened to this account, it's where God calls Abram and he says, go outside and look at the stars in the sky and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And then as we're reading attentively to that account, you hear later on it says, and when the sun set, so God calls Abram out in the clear day and he asks him, Trust me, I'm promising you your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky if you believe it. Like if you, you can't, he's essentially raising the question, like, you can't see any stars in the sky, but put your faith in me, I will do it. And so Abram makes uh, a covenant with, or God makes a covenant with Abram. Abram ratifies it, but they split animals in half, and then God actually appears and walks through with Abram in this. Uh, ritual as a smoking fire pot. And in this formalized covenant, in this binding oath, we have Abram receiving the promises, you will have an heir through him. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Your descendants will be a great nation. Your descendants will dwell in the land that I promised you. Before, if we're reading the translation in the NAB, we have promises. I promise you will do this. But then it's now a covenant. It's going to be binding. So let it be done to me. They're both saying, 
being cut apart if I'm unfaithful to the other party? Abram saying, Lord, if I'm unfaithful to you, let it be done to me that I be cleaved in half. And God's saying, if I'm not true to my promises, let me be cleaved in half and let it be done to me. So there's this strong tie here that's being woven between Abram and the Lord. In Genesis 16, um, that's a story of Hagar, which is Sarai's slave, servant. Um, in the story, Abram and Sarai are promised this great heir and numerous descendants, but they continue to remain childless. Sarai is barren. And so they're kind of at wit's end. They're getting a little bit older. What are we going to do with all of our possessions? What are we going to do with our land? What are we going to, we're trying to make uh, a contingency plan in case something doesn't happen. And so the promise is risk because Sarai says, hey, why don't you take my Egyptian slave Hagar and have relationship relations with her and she'll bear you a son and he will be our heir. And that's exactly what happens. And they have, Hagar has Ishmael. Sarai, though, over the course of this, gets jealous and pushes Hagar out and mistreats her. Uh, and both Sarai and Abram do not handle the situation with grace. Uh, there's things that we could look at and be like, yep, that was not good to do. So then Hagar and Ishmael are promised to be taken care of by God. Hagar actually calls out, knowing the Lord, being evangelized, and calls out to the Lord in her cry for mercy, and he listens to her. They're going to have numerous descendants, but they're also going to have hard and unsettled lives. So as we're listening to, we, can, we should begin to think, okay, like, Abram's known for his faith, but he's also human. He has his ups and downs, but he is faithful because when God comes back and says, trust in me, you have done wrong, but I'm willing to forgive. He says, yes, Lord, I know. I have the humility to admit I've done wrong. I'm going to recommit myself. And then in Genesis 17, God again reconciles Abram to himself and asks for a trust. He renews his covenant and his promises with Abram. And then he actually gives him a sign that says, this is going to set you apart. And that is of circumcision. Abram laughs at God when he tells him, you're going to have a son, but he trusts in his word. And actually laughs at God is maybe, he laughs at himself. Um, he's kind of at wit's end, but he trusts. So it's kind of, yeah, okay. I don't understand how this is going to, happen. But if you say so, Lord, let it be done according to your word. And maybe you've been there before where you're in a dark place and you trust God's going to bring you out of it, but you don't know how it's going to happen. So you kind of like, uh, I don't know how this is all going to work out. And in this covenant, we actually have some name changes. So we go from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which is means father of a multitude. So God saying, no, you were this. I will make you this. I'm going to actually change your identity here. I want you to realize you will be the father of a multitude and let others be known. 
And Sarai goes from my lady to Sarah, the lady of many. So like our lady versus my lady. Um, and then Isaac, their son, that's promised to him in this moment is named He Laughs because both Abraham and Sarah laugh at the idea in our barren age when the way of woman has stopped for Sarai that she is going to have a son. And when the way of woman stops, you can think ending of menstrual periods. She is done having any opportunity to have children, but yet she conceives by God's word. Uh, there's an interesting account, too, as we kind of build on uh, the language of the Trinity that we kind of explored through Genesis 1 and 2 of when the Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis 18, and there's three people, but yet there's one, and there's a beautiful interplay that uh, of pronouns and different people that we have conversing with Abraham. Um, different point, maybe Chad could provide some of those notes, but it, it's amazing to read back at that, but I uh, wanted to at least mention that because in our reference, even though it's a drive-by, we can begin to see that there's something going on at work here as we attentively read Scripture. Um, we kind of move past our just cursory reading, maybe the reading that we've always heard, and when we study our, the Word of God intently, we can begin to see God's revealing himself to us. Uh, Genesis 18, 18, 16, and 19, uh, 29, we have this account where Abraham actually intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah and calls upon God's mercy for them. Um, but ultimately, no one is found to be just in those cities. And so then we have the accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah getting destroyed. And Lot is rescued, but he is wounded um, and afraid and does not continue on and settles into unfaithfulness and wickedness with his daughters. And then in Genesis 22, we have one of the greatest Abrahamic stories, and that's what we're going to explore here in, uh, over on top of page 5. Any questions there? Really really quick drive-by of his whole entire life, this whole section from Genesis. But like I said, there's a lot that could be unpacked in a lot of these accounts. But I want to focus on this Genesis 22 for the remainder of the evening because it's the one that maybe is the one that sticks in people's minds the most of the sacrifice of his son Isaac. So we begin there on the top of page 5 with these verses from the letter to the Hebrews. Faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. In the verses that we miss, we have an account of the faithfulness of Abel, Enoch, Noah, and then Abraham. And the author writes, all these died in faith. They did not receive what had been promised, but saw it and greeted it from afar and acknowledged themselves to be strangers and aliens on earth. For those who speak thus show that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had come, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, 
Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was ready to offer his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. He reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead, and he received Isaac back as a symbol. So I wanted to begin our discussion because the author of the letter, the Hebrews, makes a strong assertion here that we don't necessarily read. It's not in the text um, that we're going to hear. But he notices something that Abram's faith must have extended beyond just what was happening. He knew that God was going to be faithful to his promises. And so even though this ask, this event seemed ludicrous, um, God was doing something here. So here is the account. Sometime after these events, God put Abram, Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham, ready, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you should offer him up as a holocaust on a height that I will point out to you. Early the next morning, Abram saddled his donkey, took with him his son Isaac and two of his servants as well. With the wood that he had cut for the holocaust, set out for the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abram got sight of the place from afar. Then he said to his servants, Both of you stay here with the donkey. While the boy and I go over yonder, we will worship and then come back to you. Thereupon, Abram took the wood for the holocaust and laid it on his son Isaac's shoulders. When he carried on the fire, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two walked on together, Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, he said. Yes, son, he replied. Isaac continued, Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the holocaust? Son, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the sheep for the holocaust. Then the two continued going on forward. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood and on the altar. Then he reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. The Lord's messenger called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Lord, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not let the least thing, do not do the least thing to him. I know how devoted you are to God, since you do not withhold from me your own beloved son. As Abram looked about, he spied a ram caught by its horn in the thickets. So he went and took the ram and offered it up as a holocaust in place of his son. Abraham named the site Yahweh Yireh. Hence, people now say, on the mountain the Lord will see. Again, the Lord's messenger called to Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did in not withholding me from your son, your beloved son, 
I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and stands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies. And in your descendants, all nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command. Abram then returned to his servants and they set out together for Beersheba, where Abram, Abraham made his home. So have you heard that story before? For us moderns, it seems maybe a little crazy. Maybe uh, a little mystifying. Yet it's reality. God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son as a test. And he does it out of love. Father Worth reminded me last week um, to Victor, your great question. Just we have to keep in mind God is a God of love and mercy. And he's at work in all these accounts. One of the things that we actually, as we look back and read this, what's this account seem like? Does it resonate with any other story that you might hear in Scripture? So you see that there at the bottom um, in letter B, I make reference to typology. Maybe we've talked about it, um, but it's a way to look at Scripture and see the discernment of persons, events, or things in the Old Testament which prefigured and thus served as a type or a prototype of the fulfillment of God's plan in the person of Christ. Uh, Scott Hahn writes that second sentence there. Typology is what enables us to discern in God's work of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant prefiguration of what he accomplishes in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate Son. So you can see the correlations there. We have Abram and Isaac, Father and Only Son. And then we have God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. Isaac's is Abram's only son and Jesus' is God the Father's only begotten Son. We hear later on that Jesus is called the Lamb of God and what is offered by Abraham, a ram, and they're both caught in thorns as they are ready for the sacrifice. The wood carried up by Isaac matches the wood of the cross carried up by Jesus on the mountain. And then it's a little small, maybe it's a little bit bigger because I have some side notes. But that map there up on the top right corner of page five, you can see where we have Golgotha. That's the place where Jesus was sacrificed. And then you see on there too, oh, that's really close to this place called Moriah. And you have the dome sacrifice or the temple right there so the events that we're talking about take place on the same mountain so reading genesis 22 we have to see that god is working here to create a type of understanding for us as well as 
purifying Abram's faith and giving us a model to believe in. I'm going to pause. Chad, you got anything else to add? There, there's a lot to be said here. I'll keep it real brief. Okay. There's a part in every Mass where Father Lord of the Lord will the host and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that word behold is a command for all the lepers. Look. Look and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who offers himself on this altar in front of the priest as the priest celebrates this Mass. And there's a wordplay going on in Genesis 22 um, in the verses. If you have your Bible or you can see it in the text that Blake printed out, but um, in verse 14, 22, 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, this place that is where a ram, a male lamb, was offered as a sacrifice. The Lord will provide. And the word in Hebrew is he'll, he'll see to it. And we, we even say that sometimes in, in English. Uh, uh, honey, can you get the dishes? I'll see to it. You know, I'll take care of it. But the wordplay is um, seeing to something, taking care of something, addressing something that's not quite right on the one hand, and being seen on the other. So in my Bible, I have a footnote. Either we'll see to it or we'll be seen. And I think that both meanings are here in the text. In this place where the Lamb of God is offered, something that's not right is being seen to. Something is being addressed and fixed and resolved. But also, someone or something is being seen. And so when Father Worth holds it, behold, the Lamb of God, we're supposed to see. And there's an opportunity when we present ourselves for communion and the priest or the, the, the minister or the Acolyte, I guess, would say, hold aloft that which we're about to receive and say, the Lamb of God. Uh, is that what he says? Um, no. The body of Christ, yeah, sorry. And we say, we give our consent, amen. Uh, yes, I grant that that's what I'm beholding right now. I am, I am bearing witness. I'm seeing the Lamb of God, the body of Christ, that we receive. So here's a place where God is, in every Mass, where God is taking care of something offering, but also where he is showing up and being seen, which is why Abram built the altar in the first place, right? He saw the Lord, and so he built an altar there. Thanks, Chad. Um, real quick, because this is maybe more of a hot take, but I think it's uh, on the line, so anyone of authority, correct me. Um, if you're wondering, like, why would God uh, ask Abram to do this human sacrifice. Maybe that thought accrued in your head. Um, we can take also just the collective understanding right now. What's going on around Abraham? The idea many people are already sacrificing children to gods, demons, um, pagan deities. And Abram's not apart from that. And so not in the sense of apart from that, but this is going to weigh in his collective understanding. So God here in this moment is showing forth like, hey, this is not what I'm about. This is not the way that we worship, that you worship me. You're not to sacrifice your only begotten son. You're not in uh, to sacrifice humans. 
So it's a definitive stamp actually against human sacrifice in this moment. But just as God might come to us and speak to us through some modern song or some modern way of language, that he can also reveal during those times instances of what Abram, Abraham would understand. Is that fair enough to say from if anyone has that question that rattled around in their head? So uh, if we look back with our 21st century lens, we can think this is crazy. Why would anyone be a Christian? But when we actually take it as it is and read it in context, um, then we can begin to see like, okay, God is doing something here. There on the top of page six, we have that definition of covenant again, a solemn agreement between human beings or between God and a human being involving mutual commitments or guarantees. Continuing this theme of relationship, identity, and mission, we're beginning to build our covenants up with God, begin with Adam and Eve as one holy couple. The idea that our identity flows from our relationship with God as Father. God creates for himself one holy family with Noah, letting us know God is faithful to his promises. And then he makes one holy tribe, Abram and his descendants. By trusting God, Abram and his descendant, Abraham and his descendants will be a great nation, have the promised land, and be a universal blessing for all. Abram Ham has righteousness credited to him, we hear. In scripture, he was faithful but not perfect, so he is a model for us in adoption by God because we can all look at our lives and we see, oh, hey, we don't always do things as we should, but God's the one who credits it to us as righteousness. So in a sense, God knows Abraham, and he says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you in, and I want to share my righteousness with you. So then I just want to end with a little bit of walkthrough from the New Testament, especially St. Paul's letter to the Romans, to give us a clear sign, an image of what does it mean to have this righteousness credited to us by our faiths. So St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And then we skip a few verses. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the inherent adherents of the law, but also those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him and who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we can say we're not actual literal descendants of Abraham. Most of us probably aren't. But by faith, by generation of how God had continued to work, we can call him 
our Father in faith. And it is to have this deep abiding trust in God, just as we remember back to our opening activity of listening to his voice and following after him. And it's binding on us. It's part of a covenant that we make with God that he bestows on us at baptism. So then in Romans 6, St. Paul continues on kind of defining this point of what's our obligation Do you not know that if you present yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were once a slave of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were entrusted. Freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. But now that you have been freed from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit that you have leads to sanctification or being made holy. And its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then on the back page or page seven there, What we need to look at when we see Abraham as a portrait of righteousness or of being justified or of faithfulness is that faithfulness is a matter of heart and practice. It's not solely just a profession or belief or of just doing works alone. So as a matter of heart, our Lord Jesus tells us this. In John chapter 8, Jesus then said to those Jews, who believed in him. If you remain in word, my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in a household forever but a son always remains. So if a son frees you, then you will be truly free. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no room among you. I tell you what I have seen in the father's presence. Then do what you have heard from the father. They answered him. They answered and said to him, our father is Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. So these words from Jesus show that there must be a matter of heart. The Pharisees, these disciples that he's talking to, and you can pick up other accounts through sacred scripture, there's this sense of, hey, we're doing these things, but they were lacking this faithfulness behind them. And Jesus calls them out and says, if you were a son of Abraham, you would be believing in me. So there has to be a matter of our heart being conformed to following the will of the Lord. But then there has to be a matter of practice too, which we hear Jesus say in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So in following in the footsteps of Abraham, there's also a matter of practice. Just the idea or merely the profession of faith doesn't mean that we will be saved. And so when we look at Abraham, we see a man of faith, but a human man. And he knows his limitations, he knows his weaknesses. And we see a loving God that picks him up, adopts him as his own, and asks him to trust and follow him. So in considering the great story tonight, we're left with that question. We're left with the experience of that activity, and we can relate with Victor and John. Whose voice are we hearing? Are we taking the time in silence to consider, Lord, am I hearing your voice? Am I attentive to those times when you have appeared to me as you appeared to Abraham in the past? And then when we hear the voice, we have to say, I've seen, I've heard, I've encountered someone that knows the Lord, and maybe they're trying to bring me to him. So where's my heart in all this? And then ultimately, am I actually changing my life? Do I believe it? And do I believe that it's so that I'm willing to conform to it? So we can rely on Abraham, Abraham as our model, as well as the many witnesses that have gone before us really consider what does it mean to be credited with righteousness it's to have a loving trust in God in both matter of heart and of practice as well as the many witnesses that have gone before us really consider what does it mean to be credited with righteousness it's to have a loving trust in God in both matter of heart and of practice thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.